I read Spare and I have so many thoughts. Why the Israelites needed to put blood on their doorposts in Egypt. And do I believe that IVF is wrong? All this and more on today's episode of the Classically Abbey podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Classically Abbey podcast. I am so glad you are here. If you are new to the podcast, make sure to subscribe so that you can see all of our new episodes, all of my new episodes. <laughs> and if you would prefer to watch the, the podcast rather than listen to it, then you can head over to my YouTube and subscribe there as well. I hope you guys are doing great. And in today's episode, our main portion is going to be about Prince Harry's Spare, the book that he just came out with. Uh, I'm a little bit late to the game on this, just a little bit, because I wanted to make sure I actually had read the whole thing before giving my review. I kind of gave a mini a mini review when I had listened to just first the first bit, uh, a little bit of the of the first portion, and now I can actually talk about it. And I want to explain why I feel that it's important to talk about in the first place, why this isn't just gossip, but why I think it's relevant to what we talk about here at Classically Abbey. So we'll also be doing our weekly catch-up, our faith talk, and stay tuned till the end where I'll be answering my premium subscriber questions. Now, if you want to submit questions for future episodes, make sure to become a premium subscriber on my Substack. It's at classicallyabby.substack.com. It's just $7 a month and you'll get access to my book club as well as exclusive weekly articles and a bunch of other great things. We have an amazing community over there and it's only $7 a month. Or if you pay for the whole year, you'll get two months for free. So, If you like the podcast, make sure to share it with your friends, with your family, and I would love if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's always good for my podcast if you do so. But now let's get into our weekly catch-up. So I have a few things to share. It's been a busy couple of weeks, starting with the fact that my son caught hand, foot, and mouth. So I don't know if you have kids. I'm sure you know what hand, foot, and mouth is. If you don't, It's like sores that show up on the hands, the feet, and in the mouth. Uh, My son has now had it twice, which is crazy because he's not even in daycare. He's just at home with me. But it's probably because we go to synagogue. So he's still spending time with other kiddos. And he uh, has had it twice. It is no fun. Uh, The first time he had it was at six months, and he ran 104 fever, which was really scary. We actually went to the emergency room that time. And this time, I think maybe because he's a little older, he only ran 102.5. And then again, he woke up in the middle of the night. He had spiked his fever again. And uh, but he did. He's doing pretty well. He's recovering well. But basically what that meant is that my week has been taking care of my son and not doing a lot of work and trying to cram work into the pockets of time in which he's sleeping or whatever else, someone else is watching him or something. But it's it's always crazy. And I'm sure moms can relate that when your kid is not feeling well or is sick, then you are twice as busy because you are trying to figure out how to get things done that you need to get done while also being a lot more engaged with your children because you have to take care of them a lot in a much more intense way. So that's been 
That's been hard, but he's doing a lot better. And that's the important thing. We're actually going to get his first haircut today. I know. I can't believe it. He's almost a year old. uh, And we're going to talk about that in a future episode. But I'm planning his birthday party. and I'm really excited about it. Um, But he's getting his first haircut today. And it's really interesting because Mr. Baby never actually lost his hair. He was born with like a full head of hair and he never lost it. He's always had a very nice head of hair. And so now the end is starting to get really long and curling out and it's time for his first haircut. And we're we're both excited to see what he's going to look like because it really does make a baby look like a little boy. So that's amazing. But also it's just like he's getting big so fast. How is this happening? I don't I don't even know. We've been going to the library. So I don't know if you guys have been to your local library, but you should go. Going to the library is the best. Number one, free entertainment. It's awesome. Number two, reading is great. I'm a big proponent of reading. Number three, it's a new environment for Mr. Baby to explore. And it's a place for us to go just even a couple times a week for him to just crawl around and enjoy a new space. I put him down in the little kid's room while we look for books to uh, bring home, and he has such a good time. I am such a big fan of the library. I didn't go for a long time, but I'm trying to remember when I started going. In Omaha, when we lived in Omaha for a year, that was, I think, the first place I had gotten my library card since childhood. And I loved going to the library when I started going even more in Virginia and now here. So if you have a local library, even if you don't have kids yet, check it out because free books, awesome. Also free magazines and free movies. Why not? But if you have kids, it's even more fun. Like you have a place to spend time with your kids that's free, that they enjoy. And a lot of the time they have like readings and things like that. And now that we just shifted over my son's nap schedule, We should be able to go to some of the readings for little babies that they do because originally it was during his nap, but we are shifting around his nap schedule right now, which is stressful, but exciting. I shouldn't, I'm like getting derailed. I have a whole list of things to talk about in our weekly catch up, but I have so many things I want to, I keep like bringing up that I want to mention. (laughs) I don't know why. I feel like I haven't talked to you guys in a while, which is ridiculous because I talk to you every week, but still, I feel like I haven't talked to you guys in a while. So hi, I missed you. Um, But it's really funny because Mr. Baby, the other night, so while he was dealing with hand, foot and mouth, generally my policy is if he is sick, I don't wake him up from naps. I just let him sleep as much as he needs so he can recover. Well, that was a mistake (laughs) because on Friday, uh, he took a nap and he fell asleep around and I let him sleep till six, but his bedtime is usually 7.30 or eight. Well, he did not go to sleep until 10. And then he woke up at 12.45 and was ready to party. So the two of us hung out while he played with his toys between 12.45 and 3 a.m. And then he slept from three till eight o'clock. So basically he treated his first part of the night between 10 and 12.45 as like a nap. And then he woke up and was awake. Uh, It was not the best. And that was when I talked to my dad and he is a big fan of talking about baby sleep. And he said, you know, let's just do one nap today, even though he normally does two. And then we'll see how he sleeps. And last night he slept 
from 7.30 p.m. till 6.40 a.m., just straight through, no wake-ups. It was awesome. So now I'm kind of going off my dad's new recommendation for his nap schedule, which is a half hour in the morning just to get him through to his real nap in the day between 12, uh, between, when is his second nap? Between like 12.30 and 2. Uh, sorry, 12.30 and 3. This is a lot of detail if you're not interested in baby naps, but it's kind of interesting to me, so I'm sharing it. <laughs> Feel free to skip it if you are not interested. Fair enough. But we've been spending a lot of time with my parents and Jacob's parents, and it's just been so lovely. And one of the things that we've recognized, because we spent a weekend with Jacob's parents and then we actually spent this past weekend with my parents, is just how much we actually enjoy having our parents around I think a lot of people feel that stress or they have anxiety between kind of a tension between in-laws and depending on the relationship, I don't think it has to be that way. We're very, very blessed that that is not our situation at all. And we really enjoy being with the other's parents. And it's something that I think more people should try to develop if that is possible. Because I know that some in-law relationships are really fraught with tension, but if it's just kind of like, meh, maybe develop it. Maybe see if there's a way for you to develop that relationship with each other's sets of parents so that you can enjoy the time that you spend with them as much as we enjoy the time we spend with our with our parents. The, uh, the next thing I want to mention is something about what Jacob said about our house which made me so happy. Uh, So we live in an 1800 square foot home, which is not tiny at all, like not at all, but it isn't huge. Uh, It's three bedrooms and the middle portion of the house is one big open space. And I love our house. I really, really do. But when Jacob said, our house is like a cottage, it made me go from liking our house and, and really enjoying it to being like, oh my gosh, this is bliss. I am obsessed with our house now. I love the idea of living in a cottage. A cottage is cozy. A cottage is warm. A cottage is is more petite, but there's something beautiful about how small and cozy and warm it is, right? You can't have a ginormous house that is a cottage because part of something being a cottage is that it is more contained. And so loving, I loved when he said that because A, I'm hoping he said it because of the way I've decorated it and I've made it feel warm and welcoming and cozy. But I also feel like when you, it it just really taught me how much a shift in perspective can make you enjoy something more. So just shifting my perspective from, oh, this is a, a smaller home, not one that I think is small, but could be a smaller home to some people. Instead of thinking that, thinking of it as a cottage that is warm and inviting, that makes it so lovely. And so if you live in a smaller home, a smaller space, try thinking about it like it's a cottage. I think it'll change the way you view it and it'll make you enjoy the space even more. Last but not least, sort of last but not least, we'll do, this is the second to last but not least. Can you believe it's already February? (laughs) How is the year going by so quickly? 2023 feels like it's flying. January went by so fast. And we're going to be in February so soon. We can talk about Valentine's Day. Leave your thoughts in the comments on 
on YouTube if you have thoughts about Valentine's Day because I'm curious. But if you want to leave comments on just the podcast, then you can become a premium subscriber at Substack and on my Substack. And that's how you will be able to leave a comment on the podcast itself. But I just can't believe that we've already gotten to February because January, I feel like it just we just entered 2023. How did that happen? Okay, here's the real last thing for our weekly catch up which is a fun new board game I wanted to mention. So if you didn't know, my husband Jacob is a board game aficionado. He loves board games. He collects them. He, we play so many board games. I have so many reviews I'm sure I could share, but I wanted to share a game that we played yesterday for the first time, and it's called Irish Gage. It's kind of like a mixture uh, between Ticket to Ride and what's the second What's the second game? Maybe something with stocks. Let's say Acquire, which most people don't know. But if you do know the name, the game Acquire, there's a, a, a very small element of stocks that Acquire is all about stocks. <laughs> but in any case, this game is a lot of fun. It's really easy. It's really quick. And it's one of the things that we talk a lot about a, a lot about is the aesthetic of a game. If you buy a game that's really fun, but it's just ugly to look at, it's not as fun to play. And this is a really beautiful game. I love the Irish aesthetic. It's something I really enjoy looking at. So playing this game was very enjoyable for me for that reason. It's easy to learn and it's a lot of fun. So if you're looking for a new game to check out, I highly recommend Irish Gage. So now let's get into the main portion of today's episode, which is Prince Harry's new memoir, Spare. Now, I listened to the book and it was a slog to listen to. It was, I think, 14 hours if you couldn't speed it up. And I sped it up to 1.15, and that that helped. But my husband and I were listening to it in the car uh, and we had to take turns driving (laughs) because it kept putting us to sleep. So my husband drove first and I fell asleep in the back and then he started to fall asleep. And then we switched because... I woke up, I took over to drive, and then he fell asleep in the back. It was very, very funny. Uh, And I think that shows you a little bit about about how A, he narrates, but also B, the content of this book. Of course, it is, you know, gossip and people are excited because it's a, a look into the royal family that they've never seen before. But the truth is is that it is uh, not super interesting to listen to, especially the first section. The first section is is really, really long and boring, <laughs> mostly. So here's the thing. The only reason I listened to this was because I wanted to be able to share my thoughts on it with you all. I don't believe that sharing your thoughts on something you haven't listened to, read, watched, whatever, is fair to the thing you're criticizing, discussing, you know, any of that. So I thought that this was important. And the reason I thought it was important was because this is an example of how not to be classic. Everything we talk about here at Classically Abbey is traditional values, classic living, and modern femininity. And Spare does not, it's a guidebook on how to not be classic. And that's relevant to us, right? We can take lessons not only from positive places, but from negative things. We can watch something and say, that's how I don't want to act. That's what I don't want from my life. And this book is, I think, a very good example of that. So let's talk about turning the world against your family. I mean, Harry turned the world, is trying to 
change the narrative, right? The narrative right now is you left your family, you betrayed your family, you married this woman who took you away from your duties and he wants it to change to, well, I'm the victim. I ran away because my family is so terrible. The people who love me, the people who are closest to me, I am going to throw under the bus to change the narrative. Now, this is ironic given the fact that in the book, he criticizes his own father multiple times and Camilla, his mother-in-law, uh, rather his stepmother, for uh, trying to put things in the press to make them look better when he is doing literally the exact same thing, but even worse. Um, he shares secrets. He he lies about wanting privacy when all he really wants is positive fame. There's a very big difference between wanting privacy, wanting no one to talk about you at all, and wanting people to talk about you, wanting to be famous, but wanting it on your own terms, wanting it to be a positive fame because people love you. They have put themselves in the public eye so many times, so often in the last however many years, that it can't be that they just want privacy. Because if they just wanted privacy, they could sequester themselves, go somewhere very private, buy a very large plot of land, and, you know, do their best to avoid being in the papers. Now, I will get to the paparazzi because I know that the paparazzi is a very important part of this book and I think should have been the main portion, main thing about this book. And there was a missed opportunity here. But if they didn't want to be in the news and they didn't want to have fame at all, they could in some ways do that by just not being out there. But they have put themselves out there because they want fame. They just want it to be positive. Complaining about your life and being the second oldest when you had money and time and opportunities to travel and do good works, that's just not classic. And that's what Prince Harry did. That's what Prince Harry is doing. The book is all about how you know, depressing his life is when he's a very privileged individual. And there, I'm not saying that a person who comes from a place of privilege can't have bad things happen to them. But the truth is that outside of, and I'm not saying this isn't important, right? But outside of his mother's death, which is a huge tragedy, the things that happen in his life, it's really hard to, to pity him for everything else because he'll be like, you know, somebody was a little mean to me and then I went and jet set with my friends to go do some crazy thing that literally no one else in the world could afford to do, but he gets to do just because he has the time and the money, right? So that's like a really hard thing to parse. The truth is, Harry wasn't classic to begin with. In the same breath, he'll complain about his life and then talk about how he went to party with his friends. He had the opportunity to do good and be paid to do good and live a lavish lifestyle. But because he wasn't next in line to be king, he let everything fall apart. The reason the book is called Spare is because he says that William was the heir and he was the spare. And not just that he was the spare, but that he was born to like donate his organs to his brother. Come on. That is such a lie. And, and something to keep in mind about this book is that this is not a reliable narrator. He is telling everything from his point of view. So how much of it is true? We don't know. And at the same time that he's doing that, 
he's constantly saying that he has a very bad memory. He can't remember things. He can't, he's very bad at remembering his past and then sharing really specific details about a lot of different memories. I mean, these aren't blurred for me when I look back on my past and I'm sure it's similar for you. You'll remember kind of like a swath of what a, a little memory was like of how you felt and who was there, but you're not going to remember the color of the couch. You're not going to remember how many doilies were on your grandmother's table. Like, and he does, he remembers that stuff. So why would he say that he doesn't have a good memory so that he's not accountable for misremembering something in his favor? He will say things that you have to imagine or he's being, uh, he's saying to make himself look better. But if he didn't remember it right and he doesn't have a good memory, then he can't really be accountable. He's constantly blaming others for his bad behavior, but calling others malicious for their behavior. They don't get any excuses, but he is full of excuses. The paparazzi wanted to call him naughty So that was really about like, but he wasn't naughty. And yet everything he describes that he did in his youth and teenage years was very naughty. I mean, the way he lost his virginity was very sad for him and inappropriate when you read it. He made a lot of really poor choices, but always blamed somebody else for those choices. But if anybody else is mean to him, if anybody else is is cruel or says something that he doesn't agree with, then that's because they are cruel and they are malicious. But he doesn't have the same understanding of himself. He's upset that the paparazzi is printing negative things about him and for the times that they lied, which fair enough. I mean, I wouldn't want lies printed about me in the in the papers. But the truth is he also did a lot of bad, stupid things. <laughs> he did cocaine. He was basically a drug addict. I mean, there's a lot of history there. He naked partied with his friends without his girlfriend there, but then there was pictures taken and he's trying throughout the book. He's trying to like justify, Oh, like it's just a thing that people do. Not everyone does that. People don't just do that. Uh, And that's just the tip of the iceberg for him. And he overshares. And that is something that is definitely not classic. He talks about like, he talks about his genital region a lot in the book in many different iterations he's he talks about how he once uh had loose bowels from magnesium at a friend's wedding he's he shares too much talks about the crushes that he had on like the women at his school when like the the teachers the women at his it was just it's very odd it's just too much something we can learn from that don't overshare it's not worth it The truth is, nobody wants to hear it. Everybody thinks it's kind of crazy. One of the things that he does in the book is he calls William and Charles Willie and Pa, which are terms of endearment. And that really upset me because it's like he's using terms of endearment so that he can defend himself when people accuse him of selling out his family. No, no, no. He's Willie to me. That's Pa. I can sell out my father by telling the world that he carries around a teddy bear as a comfort, as a security blanket, a grown man that you are now telling the world he does something that I'm sure he would be embarrassed about. But I called him Pa, so it really must mean that I love him. Oh, he's my brother, Willie. I love him so much. He's he's somebody I really care about 
but also I'm going to tell everyone in the world about how mean and awful he is to me and was to me. At the same time, he characterizes William as always calling him Harold, something incredibly formal sounding, because then it justifies him hating his brother. Of course, it's a tragedy that his mother died when he was so young, and that's where the book starts. And he had to go through that in the public eye. I'm not denying that. That is awful. But you can't justify all of your bad choices from that point forward. He's almost 40. It's just, it's not, you can't do that because everybody goes through something, some people more than others. But William is his brother and went through the exact same thing. And look at how he behaves. He's married to Kate. They do wonderful works. They're very you know, publicly very good people. The truth is, I feel bad for him in some ways because to me, it's clear that he's just not very smart. Megan clearly took advantage of that because she wanted to be famous. But when she became famous for all the wrong reasons, she got mad and decided to keep herself in the press constantly trying to change the narrative to make her the good one. Now, it's not working for her, but that... That's been her goal since day one. And uh, I don't think she ever wanted to stay in the royal family. I think she wanted to raise her level of notoriety and then use that to her advantage. But it's really awkward because when you get to the third section, and I'll, I'll break down the sections in a minute, you can tell that she was standing over his shoulder telling him what to write. Like, honey, Honey, did you get to the part where where they said that about me in the news? Did you tell them that they were wrong? Did you tell them that I didn't say that, that I'm actually a really nice person? It, it's it's very obvious as the reader that, <laughs> that she was like, hey, honey, come on, come on, make sure they know. <laughs> like, it's not, it's really uncomfortable. Megan is, is not a classic woman, and I've said this before. She didn't support her husband in his duties She chose to marry someone whose life came with caveats and then tore him away from the life that he was born into, tore him away from his family, and tore him away from what he should be doing, what he should have been doing. She did not support him in the way that a spouse should support their partner. She she ran away. And, I mean, it's very clear to me in the section where she says that she's going to commit suicide it's I'm not downplaying the seriousness of that statement because I think that there are people who suffer with feelings like that and we need to take it very seriously but when you read what she told Harry it's it's very manipulative to be honest it's very manipulative because she's saying things like if I were gone first of all she was pregnant at the time which unforgivable in many ways, homicide to your child. But she's like, I should die because if I die, then the paparazzi would stop chasing you. To me, that's very obvious. Not like that is something that is so far beyond irrational that I don't think that that is real. Like that's not something she would have really felt because she knew that Harry suffered. Harry talks about how much the paparazzi used to follow him anyways. So she knew that wasn't the case. And then on top of that, she's talking about how, you know, her child would never have to suffer with that. Yeah, because your child would be dead. So 
I, t- I take issue with that with that section and with the idea that uh, they needed to leave the royal family. I mean, she basically gave Harry an ultimatum that she knew would work because she knew that he takes seriously how much the paparazzi can destroy someone's life, a.k.a. his mother. So when she says something like that, of course Harry is going to respond and he's not very smart. So he's going to respond even more so and be like, this is how things have to be. We have to get out of here. The book, now breaking down the book a little bit, the book is written stream of consciousness. So there's not really like a through line. It's just memory, 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 memory. And each memory is like, each chapter is two pages, uh, two or three pages. So there's no narrative, no through line, just little memories I'm supposed to care about. And then here is something that I took issue with, which is that the point of the book, in my opinion, should have been that the paparazzi are dangerous and need to be dealt with because I, that was the one part of the book that I was like, yeah, that sounds horrible is being chased around constantly, never having any privacy, even within your own home. That sounds awful. Now what the press prints about you, whatever, stop reading the press. And Charles told Harry that a number of times and he ignored it, but the paparazzi legitimately shooting you in your own home. That's just awful. But instead of making that the point, by focusing on constantly defending himself and defending Megan, it's distracting from the point from what the point of the book should have been, which is we need to deal with this problem. But that's not really what the point of the book was, and that's not really what he was trying to do because he's not trying to get privacy. He's not trying to hide himself from the news. He just wants to be famous on his terms. Megan made Harry woke. And it's very clear when you listen to the Oprah interview, he said, I was trapped, but I didn't know I was trapped. And anytime anyone says I was, I didn't know I was this, it's very clear that they've been, they're being reintroduced to their memories in a new framework. So a lot of this book you can told, you can tell was a retelling that was done through his new woke worldview, something that would have he would have glossed over in the past, some interaction he would have had with his brother that as a child that didn't matter and that he probably would have glossed over. Now it's part of his woke worldview of the royal family is horrible. They're trying to constrain me. And there's no idea, there's no picture of duty. It's all just, I've been trapped and I need to be free. The duties that Harry had were amazing. They were ones to his his people to do charity work. And in return, he would have gotten a lavish lifestyle and dealing with the paparazzi. Now, the paparazzi part, awful. But the lifestyle otherwise has been dealt with before for many years by many people. And William and Kate handle it fine. So... For him to act as though this is just undoable, unreasonable, is directly opposed to the fact that his brother and sister-in-law are doing it. (laughs) The only part of the book that I thought was interesting, and honestly, I felt that it was sad, was that this middle section, the first section of the book is his childhood. The middle section is his time in the military. 
And the third section is meeting Megan. And you can tell that the section that he's most passionate about was the time that he was in the military. And in that section, he's really not as influenced by other people. It's just him talking about his time. And I I feel sorry for him that he didn't stay in the military, because I think if he had spent his life doing military service, he would have been very happy. He seemed to really enjoy it, and he seemed to really find purpose in it. Now, I also think that doing royal family duties could have been really great, but his time in the military spoke to him in a way that I found meaningful. So, unfortunately, (laughs) he did quit the military, or leave the military, rather, and he did meet Megan, and now this is his life. And that's really sad, is that he now has to spend his life fighting to be in the limelight in a way that he prefers. And that's exhausting. It's not classic. And I think we can take a lot away from what I'm talking about here because these are not classic qualities. And these aren't people who are pursuing a life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in a godly way. These are people who are pursuing the they're worshiping at the altar of fame without, without recognizing that that is a double-edged sword, in a sense. That they, they, they should recognize it, they live it, but they don't want to recognize it. They're fighting the reality of it. They want it to be on their terms when fame is not on your terms. There's going to be a lot of people that hate you and a lot of people that love you. And you are going to constantly be living in that. Instead of living your life for God living your life for your family and finding meaning and purpose and fulfillment in that way. So that is my review of Spare. I hope you guys enjoyed all of my thoughts on it. I had many. I had more, but that was all I could fit in today's episode. So now let's get into today's faith talk. So if you haven't listened to the podcast before, quick explanation of what this section is of my podcast Every week we do a Torah portion and I talk about what is going on in this week's Parsha. Parsha means Torah portion in Hebrew. And uh, it's it's I love doing this section of the podcast because I love talking about the Torah. I think it's so fascinating. I did realize that because I record a week in advance, you all are hearing last week's Torah portion each week. So I'll say this week's Torah portion, but truly you're, you're hearing last week's Torah portion. But in any case, uh, in today's Torah portion, we're talking about Bo, which means come, as in come to Pharaoh. So in this week's Parsha, God brings the last three plagues upon the Egyptians. Locusts, which eat all the crops, a darkness so thick and palpable the Egyptians can't even move within it, and the death of all the firstborn in Egypt at midnight. Before God brings the last plague, he tells Moses that after this, after this plague, Pharaoh will drive them out of the land of Egypt. He'll shoo them out. He'll say, get out of here. <laughs> he won't just let them go. He will legitimately tell them to, you must leave. Before they leave, the Jews are told that they should ask the Egyptians for their gold, silver, and anything of value. The Israelites are also told that they should bring a Passover offering to God. a a kid goat to be slaughtered and its 
a lamb or a kid goat to be slaughtered, and the blood should be sprinkled on the doorposts of Israelite homes so that God should pass over them when he comes to bring the plague of killing the Egyptian firstborns. And the roasted meat of that of that offering is to be eaten together with matzah that night and bitter herbs. Are you getting are you getting where we are? <laughs> we're getting Passover. This is the story of Passover and these are the laws and it's very interesting cuz in the Torah we're getting actual laws that we use during the Seder uh, on Passover. When the death of the firstborn occurs, Pharaoh can't resist any longer and he tells the Israelites to get out of his land. They leave so quickly that there is no time for their dough to rise and all they can bring is matzah. There's also a few different commandments, mitzvot, that are shared in this Torah portion. Um, But I have a question. (laughs) So my question this week is, why did the Jews need to put blood on their doorposts? Wouldn't God know who the Israelites were? Why did they need to delineate themselves as as Israelites, separate from the Egyptians? God knows who we are. He knows I live here and, you know, Sarah lives next door. He knows where we all, who we all are, where we all are. So why are we doing something to, like, clarify it to God? God knows. I always found that funny, right, is we're going to put blood on the doorpost so I'll know to pass over. Come on. God knows. Like, why did we have to do that? Why did we have to do that extra step? So there's a good reason. God was asking the Israelites to show who believed and trusted in him. And not only that, he was doing it so that they could show each other who believed and trusted in him. So why is this true? So number one, the animals that the Jews were supposed, the Israelites were supposed to kill and put the blood on their door. Those were actually gods to the Egyptians. So that was frightening. We're going to kill your gods and we're going to put, take their blood and put them on our doorposts so that God, our God, the God, the God who's been bringing all these plagues upon you will know to pass over us and not put, and not bring this plague of the death of the firstborns on our children. (laughs) Like, That's a little terrifying is we're going to take your God and sacrifice it to the God. So that's number one. I mean, that's dangerous. The Egyptians are much more powerful than the Israelites, right? That's why they could enslave them. So that's a scary thing to do. But number two, this seems weird, right? You're not only killing an animal and you're taking its blood and then putting it on your doorframe. It's a weird thing that God is asking them to do. And you have to trust in God and do it, even though it seemed odd. Like, would you, would you trust in God enough to do that? So God wanted to see that the Israelites, the the Israelites who did this were the ones who got to leave Egypt. They were the ones who trusted in God and believed in God. They were the ones who Even though this was an odd thing to do and scary thing to do, they did it. And it showed their faith. Now, why did God need to know that that they had faith in him? The truth is he didn't. (laughs) They needed to know. They needed to know themselves. They needed to prove to themselves that they had that faith in God. 
And I always think that's an interesting thing because we always say things like God needed us to prove or show our faith in him. But really, God doesn't need to know anything. He wants us to do it for our own sake. I want you to do this thing because it is scary. And if you do it, you'll know that you can, tr- you can trust in me. You know that you do trust in me. You are proving it to yourself. And then there's the second part of this, which is showing each other. If you were the only person in Egypt who was putting blood on your doorframe, that'd be a lot scarier than looking across the street and seeing your neighbor doing it too. And seeing the guy down the block and seeing two people, two houses down. That communal strength that they drew from each other allowed them to do something so hard and so scary and so kind of weird without as much fear. So what can we take from this? We have to be brave and show what we believe in for the world to learn from, right? We, we need to be brave in what we know is good and right, even when it's hard, even when everyone else is fighting against it or telling us that we're bad or wrong. And by taking the steps to do that, by doing it ourselves, we are proving to ourselves that we can do this, that we are brave enough to do it, but it's not enough to do it on your own. We need one another to lean on when we do the scary thing of standing up against what's wrong in the world. When you know that somebody else is on your side and is doing the same thing with you, you are so much stronger in the stance that you take. So that means that A, build up and shore up your own support systems, but B, if you can speak out because somebody may feel more brave about speaking out themselves because you did. And that multiplies. That grows the movement, both for God and for conservative values, traditional values. Being brave publicly about our faith strengthens our faith, our own faith and then others' faith. And that is so important. So I think that's a really great lesson that we can learn this week is sometimes being brave, showing what we believe, even when it's a little scary, is really important for ourselves, strengthening our own faith, and for others, strengthening our communities, strengthening our our movements. So that is today's faith talk. But now let's get into our premium subscriber questions. So once again, if you'd like to become a premium subscriber and submit questions for podcast episodes just like this, make sure to head over to classicallyabby.substack.com and become a premium subscriber today. So let's hop right into these questions. Let's start with this one. How do you deal with and process negative comments on your posts, videos, etc.? Unfortunately, by virtue of being in the public eye and on the right, I see comments on your posts that are full of hate and ignorance all the time. Do these ever get to you or bother you? Do they slide off like water off a duck's back? 
Is there anything specific that you do that helps that you find helps you ignore or move past these types of comments? So I do get this question often because I do get a lot of negative comments on Instagram, on Twitter, on (laughs) YouTube, really anywhere. Uh, And the truth is I'm very blessed in that the comments don't bother me very often. I find that if you know what you're saying is the truth, not your truth, there is no such thing as your truth, is the truth, then it doesn't matter what anyone says because you are, they're just wrong. And I think that that is the the big thing, is that when someone is just wrong, it can't bother you. It would be like if somebody said to you, your hair is ugly because it's blue when you have brown hair. You'd just be like, well, that's okay, but my hair isn't blue, so you're wrong on both accounts. (laughs) That's how I feel about a lot of the comments, is that they're wrong. So how can I be offended by something that's just incorrect? Now, if somebody gets something, I don't know, closer to my, uh, to the correct, to, to really being true about me, I don't know if that's happened, but let's say, or rather, I guess the real point is if somebody says something that is incorrect and that people pick up as truth, that really, that can kind of bother me. I don't like that. Um, so for a while, for example, there were photos going around the internet of another woman who had been mistaken for me. And they were inappropriate photos, very inappropriate photos. And people were saying that I had inappropriate photos on the internet that initially it doesn't anymore, but it initially bothered me because a lot of people thought that was true that I had inappropriate photos on the internet. They were not of me. They were never of me. (laughs) They were of another woman who I've actually uh, messaged before who she felt very sad that this had happened to her and then felt bad that it had transferred onto me. Um, So that was annoying. That was upsetting because it's like falsehoods are being propagated against my, against me as a person. But when people are arguing against my, what I talk about or saying mean things about me because of what I believe, then I don't care because it's like, you know what? It's just not true. And that's okay. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I do that helps me ignore these comments. But I think really it just comes down to informing yourself. If you know more than the people who are commenting, if you know more than the people who disagree with you about the things you're talking about, then you won't feel upset when they argue with you because, or or not even argue if they say just a mean thing in the comments because they just don't know and that's okay. So that is the answer to that question. But here's the question that I kind of teased in the intro. What's your opinion on IVF, in vitro fertilization, for those of you who don't know? I know as a pro-life woman, I think it's immoral to implant knowing that many embryos and babies will die. Also, as a Catholic woman, I believe that the creation of life shouldn't be outside the marital act of sex. But I'm just so curious what your personal view is. So this is an interesting conversation because I know that there are some people who are very against IVF in the pro-life movement. I am not one of those people, but I have caveats. So my feeling about IVF is that I think it's an amazing thing that we've 
developed the technology to help women who are struggling with fertility to conceive their own children. I think that's really cool. Now, I... I think that we are in an age where everything can be taken too far. So first of all, people think that they can do IVF and that, you know, I don't think most people think this way, but we live in an age where people delay and delay and delay as far as their, as far as getting married and having children. And then they just think, oh, well, I'll just do IVF later on. I don't think that's positive. I don't think that we should encourage women to put off the issue of their fertility until they're older and then depend on something like IVF to conceive. I don't think that, and I know this is in a different realm, but I don't think something like, I I, I still have to develop my thoughts on this, but I think for the most part, I'm against surrogacy. I, I don't like surrogacy as an option. I think that it's, again, we're getting into dangerous territory. But a woman who you know, is married young or or tried to get married young and then is struggling with, you know, having her own children. I think IVF is an amazing modern medical miracle. Like it's very, very incredible, very cool. So the caveats I have as far as IVF are the wasting of the embryos. I think that that is awful, right? Like people will, they will fertilize just as many eggs as possible, and then they'll freeze them. And then if they don't want them, they'll throw them out. I can't get behind that. I think that the way that IVF should work and would be more moral is if you fertilized one egg at a time and then implanted one egg at a time so that you aren't trying to, uh, you know, stick in as many eggs as possible to see how many will stick. And then you're assuming that a certain amount are going to die in, in the process or making so many that you then throw out a bunch of potential lives. I think that that is, you know, really awful. I recognize that what I'm saying would be very expensive, but I also think that who cares? The expense doesn't matter in comparison to the amount of potential lives you aren't throwing away. So my feeling is if we could create a system in which the the eggs were fertilized one by one and implanted one by one, I could get on board with IVF. And I think it's really amazing that people can do it. Um, that is what I think of as now, as I think is a good idea as of now. I would be open to learning more about it and understanding more so that I could be even more informed. But after the research that I have done on this topic, that's where I'm comfortable. Like if somebody were to tell me that they wanted to do IVF and that they were going to do it the way that I just described, I would say more power to you. Good luck having, you know, children. I think that that's an amazing thing. So that may not be the most popular answer because I know that a lot of people are against IVF generally, but that is, I am not against IVF generally. I think it can be really, a really special thing. Um, it just has to be done the right way because as of now, we are throwing out embryos all the time. That uh, that to me is not okay because life starts from conception. So that's an issue. The next question is, what happens when a bunch of influencers influence each other? I thought that was a funny question. (laughs) I think that's really cute. So 
the way what happens when influencers influence each other is that everyone ends up trying the same thing, seeing if it's actually as good as you as their influencer that influenced them said, and then sharing it with their followers. But the truth is that influencers are always influencing each other because most of the time, and I, I generally use the term content creator because I don't like the idea of saying I'm an influencer. I don't think that I am. I would say I'm more of a content creator, but I follow a lot of other content creators. So I'm constantly getting ideas from them for things to try. And I'm super grateful about that because I have learned about so many things, especially now that I have a son, I've learned about so many little like toys and and different things that he can use that I never would have known about had I not followed other people. So what happens when, you know, you follow influencers is that influencers follow each other. So something gets picked up by one of them and then another person who follows them picks it up and they have a bunch of followers and then everybody is trying the same things all at once all the time. And it's a it's a really funny thing, but that's kind of how it works. And uh, I'm really grateful for it because I've gotten to try so many different products that were so helpful, especially as a new mom, but also just outside of that. I mean, like I've learned about different mops and different um Bissell products to clean my house and all of these different things that I never would have learned about had it not been for the other people that I follow who are also influencers. So (laughs) that's what happens. Last question is kind of a funny question. I wrote an article and I mentioned that I got a water play table for my son for his birthday. Uh, It's really for his birthday party. And someone said, can you tell us more about this water table? So yes, I can. There are a lot of water play tables, devices, things like that, that you can buy. And they're great for summertime. They're also great if you live in a warm state like Florida. Uh, And they are just a lot of fun because they're clean, right? It's just water. (laughs) So you're not trying to deal with washing out paint or dealing with any other messy thing. It's just water that they're getting to play with in a cool way. And so I got one from... Bye Bye Baby, but you can buy a bunch on Amazon. I'm actually buying a second one that's a little different. So there are ones that have all of the fun pieces built in that are kind of like waterfalls, uh, and they have toys that kind of catch the water and pour it down, and it's a lot of fun for, for kiddos. But then there's also actual water tables, which are tables that then have kind of bins in them, and you fill those bins with water and toys and bubbles and other things, And kids can play with those in the water and it's a sensory experience for them. And sensory stuff I've learned seeing my son play with his food is very important for them to kind of get used to different textures and get used to how things feel on their fingers and all of that. I will quickly say, I think I recently read something about water beads that are very dangerous. So when I recommend a water table, a water play table, I'm usually talking about using just toys, like plastic toys that go in the water or something else, bubbles or something like that. But I've heard dangerous things about water beads. So please don't do your own research, but please don't use those because I don't I don't know enough about it. But that is it for today's episode of the Classically Abby podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know your thoughts in the comments on YouTube or become a premium Substack subscriber today to leave your comments over there. If you would like to become a subscriber to the podcast, you can find us on, you can find me 
on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, really anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find the Classically Abby podcast to listen to. And I'll see you guys in my next episode. Bye. Bye.